So Second Peter, I'll start at verse 1, obviously. Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us, through the righteousness of God and our Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So far, let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you um, that we may now begin a new series this morning, and I just pray that you would bless us as we study Second Peter. I pray that you would give us a warm hunger and a warm affection for your word and for you as we go through this epistle. I pray that you would um, have the, uh, the soil of our hearts rich and receptive to receive the word that we may bear much fruit to your glory. I pray, Lord, that you would give me wisdom as I study and as I prepare and bring the word. We pray, Lord, for faithful teaching and preaching um, in this flock and through faithful ministers around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning, I am going to um, be dealing with verse 1 alone, but I do want to first spend some time on introduction to the epistle so um, I want to spend some time there first, because Second Peter, sometimes called the ugly child of the Bible, has been criticized by many scholars that it shouldn't belong in the Bible. And many accuse it of denying justification by faith. The early church historian, Eusebius, who writes from 260 to 339, that was his life, he accepted only First Peter as authentic, and he said of Second Peter, he said this, the so-called second epistle we have not received as canonical, but nevertheless it has appeared useful to many and has been studied with other scriptures. And that's a fairly early quotation. So do we find it convincing that Second Peter maybe should not be part of Scripture, do we have to rule out also the question that Peter may have written it? Well, one of the early lists of the canons of Scripture is called the Canon of Laodicea, written in 360 AD, and also the counties of Hippo and Carthage, Egypt. By the 4th century, they do include Second Peter in their list, while at the same time they reject other letters and they thus knew the difference between Second Peter and the letters that they rejected. Second Peter's acceptance was the slowest in church history. Eventually, it was accepted by most. And the question then that would remain is, who wrote it? Peter himself, the apostle, or someone posing as Peter? Many would argue that the sophisticated Greek language in Peter... And the differences between First and Second Peter, when you compare them, the seemingly high Greek philosophical understanding, and also the mention of Paul's 
scriptures at the end of the letter, if you're familiar with 2 Peter, all militate against the apostle Peter writing the epistle. And it must have been written, they say, after his death by someone who would pose as Peter. It's called a pseudonym, a false name. Somebody who took on his name and said, hey, I'm Peter, and wrote it. John Calvin from the Reformation was very aware of this struggle and the challenges to Peter and the stylistic differences between the two letters. And he says, it would have been a fiction unworthy of a minister of Christ to have personated another individual. You get that? So he says it would be very unbecoming for someone to pretend to be Peter. So if that's the case, that would be terrible. And he argues, as I will argue as well, that it was written near the end of Peter's life. But Thomas Schreiner, one of the scholars I use heavily in this study, um, he quotes a liberal scholar, Donaldson, who says this, and he admits this. is quite an admission. He says, we are forced to admit that in Christian circles, pseudonymity, which is taking on Peter's name, pretending to be Peter, was considered a dishonorable device. And if discovered, so if they found out that someone was posing as Peter, the document would have been rejected, and the author, if known, would have been censured. So even he admits that if someone was taking on Peter's name, they would have said, no way do we receive this epistle. In fact, we know there was many people who did take on Peter's name later, and those letters were circulated, and they were rejected as being illegitimate. For example, the Gospel of Peter, you may have heard of it, was written in AD 180. That's not that late. That's a very early letter in Antioch. And the author claimed to be Peter, and he was rejected. In fact, one bishop, a certain Serapion, from that area, Antioch, says this. He says, For our part, brethren, we both receive Peter and the other apostles of Christ. But the writings which falsely bear their names, we jest as men of experience, knowing that such, and this is a key phrase, were not handed down to us. That is the delivery of Scripture. That which we have received was delivered unto us. It was handed down. That is the way we understand we have the word of God receiving. It's delivered to the church, the church that's alive, that beats with a heart for Jesus Christ. And so they already talked that way early on. Now, regarding the high Greek that's in Second Peter, it must not be forgotten that Peter, the apostle, was originally a Galilean fisherman by trade. And as such, he would have interacted with a wide variety of people from the Greek world to do his business. Right, And so it would have given him a high familiarity with the Greek language and terms. Jerome, writing in 345, who was one of the most famous scholars who would translate the Hebrew and Greek into Latin, he attributes the differences between First and Second Peter simply by the use of potentially Peter using different scribes, which would make sense. Right? You use a different scribe, you're going to get a little bit of a different flavor. Recent studies into scribal methods are pretty interesting because they used different methods to shorthand. Because if you're dictating to somebody, you have to be pretty quick if you want to get the whole thing. So we found in church history, they find actually scribal methods can vary to a lot of shorthand that they would then fill in and then have that person who dictated it read it to make sure they were happy with the result. 
And so by doing that, that would explain as well some of the differences in the two letters. But it's also interesting that if you think of when you make a letter or you write a letter, depending on why you're writing and to whom you're writing, your style will be different. If you're writing an official letter to government or to a friend, it will have a different style. So all of these things, the audience and the reason for writing also would account for the differences between the two letters. Furthermore, both of these letters are really short. And so it's hardly a good sample size to say, well, therefore they could not be from the same author. And so those are the external reasons why I would say we can hold on to Peter or Petrin authorship. From the text itself, chapter 1 out of the gate says Simon Peter, which is Peter's Hebrew name, Simon. You saw it when we had it up on the LBC this morning. Simon, Simon, Satan hath desired to sift thee as wheat. Um, Simon is his Hebrew name. No apostolic or church father ever uses the name Simon. They always say Peter. For chapter 1, verse 14, if you look at that, verse 14, it talks about Peter's soon death. He says, knowing that shortly I must put off this, my tabernacle, that would make sense with Peter, who was about to die. Chapter 1, verse 16, talks about the transfiguration. Well, who was at the transfiguration? Only three, the inner circle of disciples. Peter was there. He can speak firsthand. Chapter 3, verse 1, if you look there, it says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you. It would hardly make sense if somebody was faking the epistle to now refer to the first epistle that we do know is from the same author. Chapter 3, verse 2, notice as well there, it says that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles. You see that? So he's lumping himself together with all the other apostles. And then lastly, chapter 3, verse 15, the one I referenced earlier, where it says, and on an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given to him, hath written unto you. The words seem to be contemporary, contemporary with the Apostle Paul, who was also then very aged and old, and had also written scripture. It seems like a first-generation letter. Now, I was talking about this with somebody, and they're like, oh, why do you spend all that time explaining all of this controversy? I said, because when students go to seminary, or they go to university, or they interact in the marketplace of ideas, these are real challenges to the word of God. And people's faith has been overthrown by simple jests and attacks on the word of God. Now, for some of you, you might not remember much of that. But be confident in the word of God. There are very sound, robust reasons to know that what we are going to undertake in this study is the word of God. When was it written? Because we believe Peter wrote it, it would have been written just before he died, somewhere between 60 to 68 AD, most likely during the Neronian persecution. Emperor Nero was terrible. He was a ferocious persecutor of Christians. He would tie them up on stakes, pour oil on them, and light them in his uh, palace area for a party. Uh, that's the kind of guy he was. And most likely, Peter was in Rome at this time. To whom was it written? It's most likely, because it doesn't tell us in the letter, 
that it's the same people as 1 Peter that it would be written. In fact, like I read earlier in 1 Peter 3, 2 Peter 3, verse 1, it says, This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, seeming to be the same people, which would then mean it was written to Gentile Christians in Asia Minor who had undergone persecution. But here's the interesting thing. They undergo persecution. That's first Peter. Second Peter is all about false teachers from within. And so you see the two poles of the challenges to the church. Suffering and persecution from without and false teachers from within. And so Peter takes up both of them. And this letter is all about false teachers who will deny the Lord's coming. And if Jesus isn't coming back, then what do you get to do? You get to live it up. You get to live the way you want because it really doesn't matter. And so false teachers, the compromise of false teachers will always be licentiousness, loose living, doing what you want, unrighteousness. And so that will be the hallmark. When you see churches compromising on holiness, be on your guard as to what teaching has infected those churches. So now we'll get into the text. I'll just be dealing here with verse 1 this morning. Simon Peter, an apostle, a servant, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Like I said earlier, he's using his full name, Hebrew name, Simon Peter, but it is in the Greek spelling, Simon, not Simeon. Simeon would be his Hebrew spelling, Simon Peter. In Acts 15, at the Council of Jerusalem, among the Jews, it says Simeon Peter. But here we get Simon Peter because he's writing to the Gentile audience. Jesus always called Peter Simon Peter. And John the Apostle, if you compare all four uh, letters, all four Gospels, John will be using Simon Peter the most, which is really interesting. These two were tight. Others suggest, and I do think this is interesting, this is almost like his last testament and will. Because you know when you do a will, you put in your formal names, right? I, Paulus, Johannes, de Geer, da 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 right? That's how we do that. This is Peter using his full name almost as if this is his last testament and will. This is what he wants for people to really know at the end of his life. It should also be remembered that when he's using his Hebrew name here to Gentile churches, what's he doing? He's drawing Gentile churches in with the church of the Hebrews, with one church, one covenantal heritage, one faith. He's drawing them together. And remember that oneness, that unity, as we look at the next phrase here. Next phrase is after we get the introduction. Secondly, notice he says, I'm a servant. Simon Peter, a servant of Jesus Christ. Some versions translate this as slave or bondservant, because the Greek word here is doulos, which can be translated as slave or bondservant. I think servant captures it better, because when you think of slave, a lot of us instantly go to African-American slavery, and we think of everything that was. Or slavery, bondservant, you think of voluntary service, where you've chosen to become a servant of such and so. But in this case, the word servant captures the nuance that I believe scripture wants us to remember because yes, it means you're under authority as a slave and a bond servant would be. But more than that, it also talks about a servant is someone who has a function. 
right? In the Old Testament, the prophets were called servants of the Lord. Abraham, the servant of the Lord. David, the servant of the Lord. Moses, my servant. These are terms of function. Yes, lordship and function. So we must remember that we also, you and me, we are servants of Jesus Christ. We are called by him. We are under his lordship. And we have been given a task. Because if you say you're a servant, you have obligations. And don't forget that. Notice also it says, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The Greek word apostolos generally means a sent one. Someone who's sent out. But here, Peter is using it in a peculiar, unique way to talk about the apostles of Jesus Christ, not just sent out people generally by the church when someone's sent out. No, this is the class A apostles. So again, remember, the term servant is wide. Servants by function and by design. But apostle is narrow. Narrowed to those who were commissioned. And that is why in the last testament and will, as it were, this letter is so important for us to remember This is the apostolic word of God. Notice, last of all, the phrase here of Jesus Christ. Because everything he declares is not just coming from Peter. He's representing Jesus Christ, our Lord, your Lord, our Lord, Peter's Lord. Always and only Jesus is what matters. He is the one whose authority should matter to you and me, whose rule over the world and over the church is unquestionable. Therefore, what we're going to find in this study is not just opinions. Peter's writing authoritatively to answer and address the threats of false teachings. He's not the servant of man, but of God. He didn't reason towards authority, No, he subjected his reason to Christ's authority. Here's what's interesting, because often a minister will be called, oh, a servant of God, and then conflict erupts in churches, divisive doctrines come in, and often the doctrine and the teachings get submitted to the thinkings and the machinations of man. And the pastor, who is to be the servant of God, bringing the word of God, compromises and becomes the servant of men because he wants to kind of keep everything together. Let the word of God be central. How often aren't churches constantly confronted, even today, with challenges of authority? Think about what the government has done in the last two years to challenge the question of the lordship of Jesus Christ over culture and over church. Think of what they're doing to sexuality. Think of the philosophy of education. They have taken education to be theirs. But it's also questions of doctrine, questions of practice, questions of ethics. The church is always a church militant on earth. And all are questions of, guess what? Ultimate authority. Who or what? demands your ultimate allegiance. Answer that very clearly, very carefully, and very biblically. We must not start outside of the word of God, but rather within the word. Learn to think God's thoughts after him. 
What does that mean? It means holding to it in the marketplace of ideas. It means all your discussion at work, at school, at home are saturated with the word of God, which means what do we need to do? Be in the word of God. Study it. Know it. Love it. Memorize it. So that when the challenges come, verses come to your mind. So you know what God is thinking and has taught on these things. And most of all, don't be ashamed of the word of God. Don't, don't make excuses. This is God's word. Don't park it on the shelf. Bring it to the forefront of your home. Like Joshua, as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Let that be in our lives. That's the lordship of Christ. And look what Peter says next. To them that have obtained like precious faith with us. He talks about what these people have, his audience, the church. He says, faith, faith. But notice how he describes it, who have obtained like precious faith. The word to obtain is the word that means chosen by lot, divine will. It's only used three other times in the entire New Testament. One time would be with Zacharias in Luke 1, 9, where he was chosen by lot into the priestly service of the temple. It was also used when Jesus' garments at the cross were divided by the casting of lots. And lastly, in Acts 1, 17, by the appointment of Judas into the apostolic ministry. But in all these things, it's very clear, the word to obtain has everything to do not with the mind or the will of men, but of God. Chosen by divine choice. That's what that word means. Allotted by him. So read it that way. To them who have been allotted by divine choice like precious faith. Now, scholars here will debate what the faith is. Does it mean the faith or the ability to believe or is it the content of what you believe? You get the difference? So is it God allotting to us the ability to believe or the what of what we believe, the content, the gospel? Look down at verse 3. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Or look at verse 4, where it says, Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. That's like content, isn't it? And in verse 5, we are told then to add to our faith, which makes it more interesting. And it seems to be there, again, the ability to believe. So we kind of got both. And I think when I was reading over this, I poured over this with many, many different scholars from Calvin all the way to today. And I saw both sides being argued for. I think it's a false dilemma. I think the faith that's obtained or allotted is both the ability to believe and the content then of what you believe. That's why it's called the faith. The faith is foundationally tied to its object. Faith is what you lay hold of. And so the ability to clasp is God's gift and what you are clasping is also God's gift. They are inherently tied together. And I think we get a clue of that when Peter in Acts 15 is in front of the council of Jerusalem and this same Peter will say this that about the Gentiles and he says put no difference between us and them. God didn't. He says purifying their hearts that's the content by faith. 
And so he ties the two together. Now, what does this mean? Was there anything in us that was worthy of the gift of faith? Was there any power in us to overcome the shackles of unbelief that plagues fallen men? Is there anyone here this morning that dares to claim that their faith is because they are smarter or more able or have more power than anyone else? Is that why we're here this morning? No. He has given that to us. Paul says in Philippians 1.29, For unto you it is given not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his name's sake. The fact that you or I believe is by sovereign choice. God could have passed over us because we were all in the same state of sin. We are not saved because we embraced Christ, but rather because he embraced us to embrace Christ. Oh, how many people stumble at this doctrine. And rather than fight against it and argue against this teaching of sovereign choice, let us remind each other, as Peter does here, he begins with this doctrine. He front loads this epistle, reminds them that's who he's talking to, people who have been given faith to believe and to obtain what they believe. He identifies them by it. And notice what it's called, like precious faith with us. The word like precious is in the Greek one word. It kind of has two parts, which is why our version translates it as like precious, because it is um, hisotimos, which means equal or like, and precious or honorable. So those are the two parts of that one Greek word. About the first part, like or equal, one commentator, Peter Pett, says this. He says, this word, hisotismos, was particularly used in connection with foreigners, strangers, who were given equal citizenship in a city with the original inhabitants. So you're a stranger, normally you shouldn't be participating, you don't have voting rights, but Peter's using the word to say, no, 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 you are with them, you are equal with them, you're sharing with them. And why would he do this? Because he's writing to Gentile Christians and he, the apostle to the Jews, is saying, hey, we all share in one like faith with the Jews. You guys are drawn into one and the same. It's of equal worth. You guys aren't lesser Christians. And that's good for us because most of us here, if not all of us here, are Gentiles. We're the nations. And we have the same faith. We share the same rich heritage. We can flip through the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, and claim it as the covenant document for the church, for all of us. But then also look at the word precious or honorable in that same word, like precious faith. Because whatever these false teachers were bringing was not honorable. It wasn't precious it was dishonorable. It was worthless. It was something to be discarded. How quickly aren't we tempted to actually value what God does not value? Subversions of Christianity that look nice, that look honorable, that look precious. Oh, we're so easy to get tempted by that. The social justice movement has infected the church 
and it is subverting the gospel. It looks honorable, it looks right, but it has taken away the need to bring sinners to Christ. We just have to give them a cup of water, we just have to stand up for rights and freedoms and privileges. Or think of the new apostolic movement, which is an assault on the authority of scriptures. Modern apostles speaking new revelations, new authoritative words. That is a subversion. It looks honorable. It looks precious. But it's dishonorable. We must discard it. What about woke Christianity? It's redefining depravity and splitting people up into almost levels of depravity. That is a subversion. It's not honorable at all. It dishonors and shames the gospel. We must discard that. They dishonor Christ. They dishonor the worth of Christ, the word of Christ, and the work of Christ. And so no, ours is a like precious faith. This is the battleground of Peter's whole letter here. And the twin epistle with 2 Peter is Jude. They were most likely written at the same time. They have very similar content. We don't know which one came first, but Jude speaks so similarly when he says this, that we must earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Once delivered, one faith, and fight for it. Hold on to it. Are you committed to the word of God? Are you committed to the faith? Are you watching out for subversions? Are we going to be like Luther, who was summoned before the emperor Charles V, surrounded by Spanish knights in gleaming armor, six princes, 24 dukes, 30 archbishops and bishops, and seven ambassadors? That's where Luther stood. And one simple question was before Martin Luther, this little monk, this nobody from Wittenberg, Germany, and they asked him this simple question. Do you wish to retract your teachings or do you adhere to them and continue to assert them? You know what he did? He said, give me 24 hours because he knew everything was on the line and he wanted to answer well. And he came back with his very famous answer. He said this, unless I am convinced by scripture and by, or by clear reasoning that I am in error, for popes and councils have often erred and contradicted themselves, I cannot recant, for I am subject to the word of God. I have quoted, my conscience is captivated, captive to the word of God. It is unsafe and dangerous to do anything against one's conscience and is famous. Here I stand. I can do no other. God helping me. That is the faith, the precious faith he was holding on to. The faith shared with the apostles. Oh, the precious heritage of the faith given to us. Whether you come from a rich family or you come from nowhere, whether you are from the high parts of society or scum, whether you are here this morning hearing it for the first time or you've heard it all your life, the worth of Christ Jesus, the preciousness of our Lord is the same to all of us. We're all the same in Jesus. He's equally worthy to us. 
how we live under the banner of such a precious salvation, a precious God who has called us, obtained us, allotted to us himself throughout history. Think of the people that we share this faith with. Think of men like the apostles. Think of Augustine. Think of Calvin. Think of Bunyan. Think of Hodge, C.H. Hodge. Think of R.C. Sproul. Think of John MacArthur. We all share a like precious faith. Our great-great-grandparents, if they were Christians, share in the riches of Jesus Christ. That prisoner right now that is languishing in a cell somewhere in China that is a believer shares in an abundant inheritance in Christ. We're all sinners, equally hell-bound, all wretches we were. Stony hearts that would never receive the gentle rains from heaven. You ever seen water go on stone? It does nothing but water on a soil is rich. How precious then is the faith that was delivered to us. How precious is Christ who bridged the massive gulf between us and God. How worthy is the gospel. The gospel of Christ who is our surety. Christ who secured your pardon and mine. Christ who is our advocate. Christ who is our great high priest interceding for us without fail. Never stopping to pray for you in your times of darkest trial. Christ Jesus is praying for his people. Oh, the precious, sweet Savior that we have. The wonderful Redeemer that we know. It is Christ who causes our hearts to be lifted above the struggles and the trials of the weak and draws us to have hope in him. This is Jesus. We share this like precious faith. Oh, remind each other much of this faith we have. Lastly, through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Literally, in the righteousness of God and our Savior the sphere in which all of this inheritance has been given to us is in the righteousness of God. What is this righteousness? Most scholars, contemporary scholars, will argue that it means the fairness or the rightness of God that he would grant equal salvation to Jews and Gentiles. That's the righteousness of God. God is impartial. He doesn't, he doesn't pick favorites. That's what some scholars think this means. But the question is, is he saying something else? Because yes, God is impartial. But I think there's more here to the text. Let's look at the whole phrase. Through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's very literal from the Greek. Who is God that's referred to here? Is that the Father? And then obviously the second one, the Savior, is Jesus Christ. That very well could be. That very well could be. There are some very reputable commentators who think it is referring to the Father and the Son. The King James leaves it open, just translates it very literally from the Greek. But we have good reason to actually think that the righteousness spoken of here is the righteousness particularly and peculiarly of Jesus Christ. And that is because the way the Greek reads, it puts an article, the, only in the first one, and then it lumps the other ones together. It's, it's a special rule in the Greek Puritan Matthew Poole says this, because of that, the sense is this, through the righteousness of our God, even our Savior, Jesus Christ, who is God, 
That's the sense of it. Because other four, three other times in this letter, or four other times, sorry, Peter will use a very similar phrase when he says, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, referring to one and the same. In fact, if you look at the little uh, footnote that your Bible may have, or your version might just right away give the translation, it can rightly also be translated, the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What does that mean? What is Peter doing here then? Peter is front-loading this letter with the divinity of Jesus Christ. He is God. What were the battles of the first four centuries of the church all about? Do you know? They were all about the person of Jesus Christ. Who is this Jesus? The early creeds, the Constantine Nicene Creed, all about Jesus, God of God, light of light, of the same substance with the Father. They wrestled with who is this Jesus. Some made him a great man. Others would make him a second God. No, the church affirms him as one and the same essence with the Father. And Peter affirms it out of the gate. God and Savior. Now, what about this title? Turn with me, please, to Isaiah 51, and you'll see this all kind of tied together. Isaiah 51. And watch for the terms Savior, Righteousness, and Lord Jehovah. Isaiah 51, 1, hearken to me, ye that follow after righteousness, ye that seek the Lord, Jehovah. Look unto the rock whence ye are hewn, and the hole of the pit whence ye are digged. Look unto Abraham, your father, and unto Sarah that bare you. For I called him alone. Remember there? Obtained like precious faith. And blessed him and increased him. For the Lord shall comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places, and he will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. So he's drawing us right back to creation. Joy and gladness shall be found therein, thanksgiving and the voice of melody. Hearken unto me, my people, and give ear unto me, O my nation, for a law shall proceed from me, and I will make my judgment to rest for a light to the people. My righteousness is near, my salvation is gone forth, and mine arms shall judge the people. The isles shall wait upon me, and on mine arm shall they trust faith. Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look upon the earth beneath, for the heavens shall vanish away like smoke and the earth shall wax old like a garment. Remember the false teachers, if you know this letter, are challenging the end. God says, no, this is all going to happen like a garment and they that dwell therein shall die in like manner, but my salvation shall be forever and my righteousness shall not be abolished. Who's speaking in Isaiah 51? The Lord Jehovah. Going back to Second Peter, the righteousness of our God and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. The righteousness and the salvation of God will be found, revealed, and known through the Son, Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You're aware that you have no righteousness in yourself. Have you come to grips with your sinfulness, your lack of righteousness, your idolatry that plagues your heart? Oh, think of the depth from all of us, the depth to which we have fallen. Think of the anger, the impatience, the arrogance, the selfishness, the greed that infects our sinful lives. Is that not enough to make us realize we need another righteousness? Because in me, in you, in each one of us is not found righteousness. Does our pride not show it if you're the one this morning excusing your sins? Yeah, I did that, but it was their fault. That's right out of the playbook of Genesis 3, isn't it? The woman, the serpent that thou hast, you know, blame, blame, blame. That's in us how unrighteous we really are to reckon with who we really are. What a terrifying sentence abides on the unrighteous. On what grounds can we hope to stand before the infinitely holy God whose righteousness will save us? Is it not Christ's righteousness, faith through the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Meditate often, church, and meditate, unbeliever, on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Think of his perfect humility. Think of his unscathed purity. Think of his impeccable holiness. His always doing the will of the Father. Remember in John where there was thunder and it says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus never once, never once failed to do the right thing. You ever had it where you thought you did the right thing and looking back, you're like, that was stupid. Never Jesus, never Jesus. He never said an unprofitable word. He always showed perfect compassion without compromising perfect unvarnished truth. Justice was the love of our Savior. Christ alone is the basis of the acceptance of anyone with God. And if giving and in giving his spotless life and dying for us, in doing that, he satisfied the wrath of God that was on us. And by faith, obtaining this like precious faith, we have a perfect righteousness that is not our own, outside of us, a foreign righteousness, a complete salvation, because God has bared his mighty arm to give it, to restore us. And so, the righteous God is calling you and me to look to him. He's calling us sinners to come to him, to believe on him. Salvation is all his, not you. All we can do is forsake our crutches, forsake our ideas, forsake the feeble, sin-stained works, forsake the false teaching, because that will make you look to your own righteousness again and flee to him alone. So what is this like precious faith? Think about this. It is more than 
hearing only of Jesus. If, if that's all you know your faith to be is, well, I've heard this stuff before. I hear about Jesus. And you realize, yes, Jesus came. If it's just information to you, it's not precious to you. But even more, if like precious faith moves from the knowledge, the awareness, to saying, yeah, it happened. Surely Jesus is the righteousness of the sinner. Surely Jesus is the only way for the sinner. If that's all, it's still not precious to you. Like precious faith is known, it is affirmed, and it is also embraced. Because you love the righteousness of Jesus Christ, freely given for you. That is precious faith. That is Christianity in some. Christ's righteousness, loved, known, and believed. Have you come to him as a child, helpless and weak, and laid hold of a father who loves you and gave himself to you? Have you clasped as a child runs to the father's legs and holds on to daddy and the strong arms of the father were already wide open and holding on to him? Believers, what a precious faith we have in Jesus. He has called you and me from misery. He has purchased us with his own precious blood. He has sovereignly given us the faith to believe. Truly, ours is a like precious faith. Amen. Let us pray. Oh Lord God, as we just meditate this morning on the gift of faith, on the content of our faith, Jesus Christ, I pray that he would be altogether lovely to us. What a wonderful, merciful Savior is Jesus Christ, our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.